you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And I've entitled the message this morning, The Empty Tomb. The Empty Tomb, John chapter 20, we'll be looking again at verses 1 through 10 together in our time in the Word this morning. So here's what we read, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed." For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read again a passage of scripture that describes for us what happened on that Easter morning over 2,000 years ago. Thank you for the truth of the empty tomb and that because the tomb was empty, it means that Christ is risen. He is risen today. And so we're excited that we have the opportunity to come and to worship, to exalt the name of Jesus through our singing, through our preaching, through our fellowship together. Be exalted in our midst this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me start off this morning by just sharing with you a couple of funny stories that correlate around the theme of Easter. For his church's Easter program, five-year-old Billy was asked to recite Luke chapter 24, verse 6, which says, he is not here, he is risen. Despite practicing it several times, when he stood in front of the church, he froze and couldn't remember what to say. The director leaned over and whispered the verse in the little boy's ear. Billy smiled, confidently grabbed the microphone, and he proclaimed, He is not here, he is in prison. (laughs) One Easter morning, a woman was on her way to church when her car broke down. Not wanting to be late for the special service, she ordered an Uber to pick her up. The car arrived and she quickly jumped back into uh, the car to go to church. Halfway through the ride, she asked the driver a question, but the driver didn't respond. So she leaned forward and tapped the driver on the arm and the driver let out a loud scream swerved into the other lane, almost hit another car, slammed on the brakes, and skidded over onto the shoulder. The woman and the driver sat in silence for several seconds from the shock of what had just happened. Finally, she said apologetically, wow, I'm so sorry, I had no idea that tapping your shoulder would alarm you like that. The driver explained, no, you really didn't do anything wrong, it's just that this is my first day driving an Uber. You see, for the past 25 years, I've been driving a hearse. (laughs) 
A man took a vacation to Israel with his wife and mother-in-law. During their time in the Holy Land, his mother-in-law unexpectedly passed away. The following day, the son-in-law met with the local undertaker to discuss the funeral plans. In cases like these, there are a couple options to choose from, the undertaker explained. You can ship the body home for $10,000, or you can bury her in the Holy Land for just $250. The man took a moment to think about it, and then he announced his decision to ship her home. The undertaker, intrigued by his decision, said, that's an interesting choice. Can I ask you why you would pay the $10,000 to ship your mother-in-law home when you can easily bury her here for $250? The man promptly replied, about 2,000 years ago, a man died and was buried here. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and I just can't take that chance. (laughs) Those are just funny things to think about, but it just reminds us that Easter changes everything. It changes how we think, it changes how we live, it changes decisions that we make, and did you know that the actual thought of Easter is actually older than the resurrection itself? The resurrection of Jesus Christ has been more than hinted at throughout the Bible. It has been announced, it has been foreshadowed, it has been proclaimed, it has been pictured, and it has been preached. And it all started with the divine promise of that very first prophecy, the Proto-Evangelium, which is in the first uh, part of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall in the garden where God cursed the serpent and then he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we call this the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first declaration of the gospel. And for the rest of human history, there would be a fight between man and the devil. There would be a fight even between the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he would conquer Satan with a death blow to his head, but only after Satan would bruise Christ's hill. And we see this referred to in the New Testament in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God did crush Satan. And because Jesus defeated the devil, he defeated death and he defeated the grave. And because of this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will also give you victory over sin, over temptation, and over the powers of this dark world. And after Jesus' heel had been bruised by Satan, Jesus crushed the devil's head once and for all at the resurrection. In Genesis chapter 6 through 8, the passing of Noah's ark through the waters of judgment onto the cleansed earth also foreshadowed this same great event of the resurrection. Peter discusses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, when it says there that God saved Noah and his family through an ark which passed safely through the water. And then Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we see the resurrection there in the Ark 
of Noah. We also see the resurrection again a little bit later in the deliverance of Isaac from the altar after God had told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac three days before in Genesis 22 verse 4. We learn of Abraham's faith and of a future resurrection in Hebrews 11:19, where it says that he considered that God was able to even raise him, referring to Isaac, from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Another foreshadowing of the resurrection was even the crossing of the Red Sea by Israel on dry ground three days after the slaying of the Passover lamb. This could be considered as a a historical type of Christ being raised three days later. In Romans 6, 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And because we have crossed over from death to life, we too can start a new life with Jesus our resurrected Savior, who has defeated all enemies and who has delivered us from bondage. The emergence of Jonah after three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish also forecasts the Savior's deliverance from the tomb on the third day. And Jesus said so much in Matthew 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, I'm here this morning to tell you that Jesus is risen. The Christian good news is not only that Christ died for our sins, but that he was also raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Something greater than the ark of Noah is here. And something greater than the ram of Abraham is here. And something greater than the military victories of Moses and Joshua is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than the manna, the Ark of the Covenant, and the temple is here. And that something is a someone, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen, and he is alive forevermore. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, this morning, I want to just talk to you from John chapter 20, 1 through 10, about the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead that the tomb is truly empty. And in order to do that, I want to give you three headings this morning about some key details surrounding the empty tomb. Number one, let's look at together consideration for the early church. Just some things to consider that the early church experienced on that first resurrection Sunday. And the first blank, if you are taking notes, simply says Christians worship on Sunday. Christians worship on on Sunday. Again, look at verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week. And I've touched on this a number of times in our study through the book of Acts, but let me just remind you this morning that Old Testament believers were to worship on the Sabbath, which was the last day of the week on Saturday. 
But the resurrection, as you notice from this text, did not happen on the Sabbath. It didn't happen on the last day of the week, on Saturday. It happened on Sunday. It happened on the first day of the week. And from the resurrection morning until this very Sunday, Christians have been worshiping on Sunday in remembrance of Jesus being raised from the dead. And we see Christians worshiping on the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. We see it again in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Later in the book of Revelation, John refers to Sunday or the first day of the week as the Lord's day. You ever wonder why sometimes we say, hey, happy Lord's Day. That's what John says in Revelation 1.10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day that Jesus owns every day of the week, but especially on Sunday, a reference to the resurrection. And so in the New Testament, we're never told actually to keep the Sabbath. In fact, keeping some of the man-made laws that were added by the legalistic Jews about worshiping God on the Sabbath had become a stronghold in Judaism. It had become something that they had began to worship, that somehow the Sabbath was, was an extra bit of grace to help one earn a right relationship with God. And so there was a stronghold about the Sabbath. And so I believe that God purposely raised Jesus from the dead on Sunday in defiance of Sabbatarian legalism, that God just said, you know what, we're not doing this thing anymore. I'm raising Jesus from the dead on Sunday. I'm instituting the new covenant, and I'm raising Christ from the dead. And every day since then, Christians have been worshiping corporately together on Sunday instead of on Saturday. Not only that, but just consider the fact that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he was never in you know, subjection to the Sabbath. He's Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus created the Sabbath. Jesus did good words of healing, good works of healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus observed the Sabbath. And then Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus is now our rest. And we talk about on the Sabbath day is when we should rest. Jesus is that rest. He is our Sabbath in a sense. He is fulfilling the Sabbath and our rest through the gospel and, and, and we can now rest daily in the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so as New Testament believers, we gather together for worship to our risen Savior every single Sunday. So that's an exciting just consideration as we're shifting from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We worship on the Lord's day. A second blank there would say that those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Notice that it was on the first day of the week, on Sunday, as we've been discussing, that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. And while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I just want to talk a little bit about Mary Magdalene. She came early on the first day of the week. She was there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, on Friday. She was there with Mary's sister, and there was Salome, and there was also Mary, the wife of Clopas, all discussed in John 19, 25. 
And it's unclear if Mary, the mother of Jesus, was still there for the burial of the body of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene was there, and she saw the place where they buried Jesus. And if you'll remember, it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had come and taken Jesus' body on Friday off the cross and placed it in Joseph's tomb. They also wrapped the body of Jesus with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes and other spices to preserve the body and to promote a good smell as they assumed that the putrefaction of a dead body would soon take place. And Mary Magdalene was not alone in coming that morning as the other gospels, the synoptic gospels record that several other women came with her. And you ask, well, why, why did they come? Well, Mark chapter 16, verse one says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So why did they come? They, they simply wanted to preserve the body of Jesus. These women loved Jesus. They purchased spices and they wanted to come and anoint the body. And if you'll remember, a similar thing had happened in Lazarus's tomb in John 11:39. just talking about this idea of a body being dead in the grave for several days. John 11:39. Jesus said, take away the stone And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And so just a little historical reminder there. These ladies are thinking with the death of Jesus being in the grave now for the third day, certainly they would have thought something like, let's go and show our care and let's show our consideration for Christ's body. Let's go and let's anoint him. And I believe that this speaks volumes about their devotion to Christ. They had such a respect for Jesus that they were willing to come to the grave on the third day in order to just be close to his body, to anoint his body. This isn't some weird, you know, type thing. This is just showing devotion and respect. These ladies cared more about the dead body of Jesus than they did about the living Pharisees. That they cared more about Jesus' corpse than they cared about their own comfort. They got up at daybreak and they wanted to go and pay their respects to Jesus. And this showed more of a desire to be with Jesus' dead body than sometimes we have a desire to be with the risen Christ. There's a certain devotion There's a loyalty seen in this text. There's an an allegiance, a dedication, an admiration. There is certain staunchness of 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 a fondness and an affection that they got up early to come to the tomb. I mean, they didn't even know when they came that morning if they would be able to get into the tomb. As Mark 16 verse 3 records, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But you know what? They didn't care. They're like, we're not 100% sure we have access to his body, but we're going. We're getting up and we're going to go do this. And again, the question's got to be asked, why were these women doing this? And again, I'll tell you why. And I believe the why is those who are forgiven much love much. Mary Magdalene could have been a harlot or a prostitute, as many historians say. That actual sin is not recorded of her in the scripture, 
but it is recorded in the scripture that she was demon-possessed. And the Bible tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. And so I would say that Mary Magdalene knew what it was like to be in bondage to the devil. And she knew what it was like to be free. And she knew what it was like to be a slave to her own sin. And she knew what it was like to be a servant of Christ. In fact, Jesus tells us about this principle that those who have been forgiven much love much in Luke chapter 7. Turn there with me, if you will. Luke chapter 7, verse 41 and following, Jesus speaks again of this very principle. Those who have been forgiven much love much. He says in Luke 4, uh, 7, 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So there in that passage, we see that Jesus is simply making the point that the one who had the larger debt and had that debt canceled out will likely love more than the one who had the smaller debt. This is the very principle that he's stating, the one who had 500 denarii of debt would likely love the person who canceled the debt more than the person who only had 50 denarii of debt. And then look at verse 44, Luke 7. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is Mary Magdalene. This is a woman who understood the depravity of her sin, who understood the stronghold that Satan had over her life. And Jesus is teaching that those who have been forgiven much love much. And I remember hearing this story as a child, thinking to myself, well, I guess somehow I'll never be able to love Jesus that much. You see, as a kid, I was raised in a Christian home, and I was a pretty good kid. I was a kid who tried to walk in obedience to my mom and my dad, and there was a bit of self-righteousness that began to build up into my heart to think, well, I could never love Jesus like some rotten scoundrel because I'm not that bad of a kid. And we tend to think like that. A lot of kids from Christian families may feel the same way. And you may think that the worst thing that you've ever done is somehow to not finish your chores on time, or maybe you got in a fight with your sibling, or you said a bad word. And you think about those sins, and you think, well, they don't look near as bad as some of the other sins that I see out in, in, in the world today. But here's my message to you this morning, is that simply this, if you are in Christ today, then you have been forgiven much. If you're a blood-bought child of the king today, 
you have been forgiven an enormity of sin that you could never imagine the grossness of your sin and the, the, the weight of your sin, the magnitude of your own sin. And the problem is, the reason that many of us don't love much is you see your sin as very small. You see your sin as just a little. But if today you could enter into this narrative with Mary Magdalene and realize that I don't deserve the grace of God, that in my own heart I've sinned multiple times, many times, so many times I can't even count. If you could realize this morning of the infinite distance of the chasm between you and a holy God, then maybe you might start to get a glimpse of what a great sinner you are. And if you think you've been forgiven little, you'll go the rest of your life loving little. But if you can see this morning you've been forgiven much, another parable from Matthew 18 is that we need to see ourselves as a 10,000 talent debtor, that we owe God 10,000 talents. That's, that's 200,000 years of your annual salary. And yet we tend to look at that other servant who only owed 100 denarii, which is just a very small portion in comparison. And so these women are coming early on this morning because Mary Magdalene knew that she was forgiven much and it stirred her where she wanted to anoint the feet of Jesus when he was alive and that she wanted to anoint the body of Jesus even when he was dead. And I don't know about you, but I'm not gonna let Mary Magdalene outdo me. Not this sinner. You and me have the opportunity today to see ourselves as those who have committed great sin against God because if we could see ourselves like that, it would open a door of love that you've never experienced. It would open a door and an opportunity for you to set your affection upon the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a deep lesson we need to learn, oh, even from verse 1, but let's continue with our next blank of the impossible happened. The impossible happened. We see that while it was early and still dark, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so just as these ladies came around the bend, just as they started asking each other, who will roll away the stone? They now see that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. Now Matthew's account tells us about how the stone got there in the first place, if you'll remember from Matthew 27, 62, it says the next day, that is after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they sealed the tomb with a Roman seal. And if that Roman seal would be broken, it would be death to the person who would break this seal. And they set the stone, they set the seal. There would be ropes again with a type of wax on them that would be sealed with the Roman signature. And so the Pharisees uh, and Pilate are working together in a sense after Jesus' death to make sure that none of the disciples would come and steal the body and say that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So here we see the pagans of Rome and the hypocrites of Israel 
couldn't afford to allow this to happen. And so they made sure to cover the entrance of that tomb with a a huge boulder and to seal the stone and to set a guard of soldiers to watch the tomb by day and by night. I mean, it would only be a power greater than that of the power of Rome that would be able to move the stone. So how could it be then that early on Sunday morning, there is no stone covering the entrance of the tomb? And the answer is because our God does the impossible. That which would never be done by human hands is done by a miracle working God. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And whatever he wants to do, he does. And what he wants to do is to glorify his name by raising Jesus from the dead. Just a reminder that if you're here this morning and you're stuck in a bad place, you can look to God. If you're here this morning and there seems to be no way out, look to God. And if you're here this morning and your back is up against the wall, look to God. If you're here this morning and you're lonely and you feel trapped in your sin and trapped in this world, you can look to God. God delivers you in a way that you would not expect. And first, he wants to deliver you from your sin. And then he wants to deliver you from yourself. And then whether or not he delivers the situation you're in is important. Uh, That's up to God, but it's more important to him that he's building your character and that he's developing in you patient endurance and that he's completing in you what you're lacking. And so these are just some reflections we can have from verse one. And so now that we've kind of considered the body of Christ, let's look at our second heading, number two, the confusion about what happened to Christ. In verse two, your next blank, did someone take the body? So she ran and went with Simon Peter and the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So here in verse 2, Mary is presuming that they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, that Jesus' body was not there. And so her first thought is that they picked up the body and laid it somewhere else. But as we just read in Matthew 27, the Pharisees and Pilate were working together, so they wouldn't have moved the body. They wanted to keep the body there in the tomb. The last thing that they wanted was for the body to be taken out of the tomb. And that's why they had the tomb sealed with the soldiers guarding the entrance. And it would have brought Pilate great comfort to know that he wouldn't have to deal with the stressful trial of Jesus anymore. It would have brought the Pharisees a great relief, amount of relief to know that they wouldn't have to debate Jesus in public anymore or to face the crowds anymore or somehow explain away his miracles anymore. The authorities did not take the body. They wanted the body to stay in the grave forever. Did the disciples take the body? Well, that's not what the scripture teaches. The disciples actually all fled when Jesus was arrested. Only John was even bold enough to be at the foot of the cross. The disciples were now in hiding as they all considered, uh, were considered as outlaws for associating with Jesus. It wasn't the disciples that first showed up at the tomb on that morning. It was these women these beautiful women who wanted to adore Christ in the body, the disciples were still afraid. They're still hiding at this moment. They weren't even planning to go on the tomb that day until Mary Magdalene had to run and tell them what was happening. And it is significant, I believe, that the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ were believing women. 
Among the unbelieving Jews that day, the testimony of women was not always held in high regard. In fact, the Jewish rabbis had said, quote, it is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. And so we see in that Jewish type of mentality, that goes obviously way off the script of what the scripture ever says, but they didn't have a lot of respect for women. And so Mary Magdalene and the other women that were with her had an incredible message. They had a more powerful message than that of the law, for they knew that their Savior was alive. And women, I believe, are fantastic witnesses of the gospel of Christ. We know that women are on equal footing with men as we're created equal in our value and our dignity before God. And so let's listen to what they have to say and let's be blessed by their testimony. And it's here in verse two that they're saying, he's not in the tomb. He's, he's not there. We don't know where they have laid him. And so the disciples, again, they would have never stolen the body. They had no desire or motive to. In fact, they spent the rest of their lives preaching the gospel. They preached that Jesus was crucified, that he was dead, that he was buried, and that he had risen on the third day. And church history records that all of the apostles, except for John, were martyred for preaching the resurrection. So why would the disciples die for a lie? I mean, the apostles didn't die for preaching a lie. They died for preaching the truth. And what did it gain them in this world to somehow propagate a lie if they were uh, arrested, they were tortured, they were killed for preaching the truth that Jesus again had risen from the dead. No one would do that if they knew it to be a hoax. We live and die for the truth, not for a lie. And this is what Paul said about the preaching of the resurrection. He said in 1 Corinthians 9.15 that he would rather die than have anyone tell him that he can't preach the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So this is the compelling uh, sense that we all should have as Christians, that woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I mean, all the authorities had to do by the way, to keep the apostles from preaching Christ's resurrection would be to produce the body of Jesus. If they were able to produce the body of Jesus, they can in effect say, well, you can't preach the resurrection because his body's right here. And if they produce that body, the gospel message would never be preached again. But they couldn't. They couldn't present the dead body of Jesus because he was and is alive. Jesus is alive. And Paul said this about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4 through 8, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he had appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul referencing there the road to Emmaus where his own conversion happened. And so we know from Scripture that Jesus made bodily appearances to all the apostles, to all the disciples, and more than 500 others on one day, and then to Paul years later. So what changed the apostles from being afraid 
No, they're, they're not at the foot of the cross, except for John. They're not at the tomb on the third day till Mary Magdalene came to get them. What changed them from being afraid to being bold? What changed the apostles from running away to standing up and preaching Christ in the town square? What changed the apostles for, from arguing over their place in the kingdom or just simply preaching uh, the kingdom? What, 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 was, what, what kept them from doing that was they were afraid. And now they believe in the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. It changed everything for them and it can change everything for you. It can change everything for you right here right now in this very service that if you were to set your eyes upon the risen Christ, everything would change for you. And we see in verses three through seven, what was in the tomb. We're saying the body of Christ wasn't there. What was in the tomb, verses three through seven, where we read Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So verses three through seven record how Peter and John, John is the other disciple here in this text. They began to head to the tomb after getting word from Mary Magdalene. And somewhere along the way, as they're heading toward the tomb, they just break out into a full headlong sprint. John got there first. Maybe John was just a faster runner. Any of you guys named John? You know, maybe he's just a faster runner. Maybe it was because John was younger. Presumably, he was around 17 to 19 years old. We know Peter to be a more aged fisherman. So John might have been faster. John might have been younger. Maybe it was because John knew exactly where the tomb was. I mean, John was there, remember, on the day Jesus died and they took the body down and placed in the tomb. Peter wasn't there at the foot of the cross. So John got there first and he stooped and he looked in, the text says, and in the tomb, he saw linen cloths lying there. Now, if the body was taken, just think about this logically for just a moment. If the body was taken, why were the linen cloths, which had been wrapped around the body of Jesus, why would they have still been in the tomb? I mean, in fact, when Peter got there, he went right in and saw not only the linen cloths, but he saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head. And it was folded up neatly and placed in a different area by itself. I mean, this doesn't really sound like the scene of a grave robbery. I mean, first of all, why would the grave robbers take the corpse out of the linen clothes? I mean, do you know how gross that would be to take a, a naked and decaying dead body that's going through putrefaction out of those cloths? I mean, that would have been disgusting. What thief would have done that? Or why was the face cloth folded up in a place by itself? I mean, whenever there has been a burglary, uh, rarely is the thief concerned about cleaning up after himself. Right? You see it on the movies. They, you walk, enter a room and it's like all the drawers are pulled out and the clothes are everywhere. Furniture's turned over. Glass is broken. You leave a mess behind. You, they don't take time. Thieves don't take time to tidy up. So I would say, unlike Lazarus, who needed some help getting out of the tomb and probably needed some help getting out of his grave clothes, I would say here Jesus needed no help whatsoever. Jesus' resurrected and glorified body simply passed through the linen wrappings. 
On at least two other occasions, Jesus was able to enter a room where the door had been locked. And presumably, by passing through the wall is how that happened. Now, there's a little bit of debate about that, but we have no problem believing that Jesus could do anything. And no doubt, Jesus potentially passed through these grave clothes and folded up his face cloth and set it down. And oh, by the way, Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away so that he could get out of the tomb. He would have been able to pass through the tomb as well. The stone was rolled away so that Jesus's followers could get into the tomb. And Matthew 28 tells us exactly how this happened as Mary Magdalene and the other women approached the tomb, Matthew 28, two through four. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Again, only something stronger than Rome could open the tomb. Only a power greater than Pilate could open the tomb. Whoever unsealed the tomb and moved away the stone shows real power. And this is the angel of the Lord that did it at God's directive. Listen to me this morning. We all, like Jesus, need to be resurrected. And the Bible says that you and I were born in our sin. We were at enmity with God. The Bible says that we were living in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. The Bible says that we were dead, that we were following the course of this world, that we were following the prince of the power of the air, that we were sons of disobedience. But thanks be to God, in that same passage in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Well, this miracle of Christ's resurrection leads to the miracle of your resurrection. He came back to life so that you can have life. He was freed from his grave clothes so that you can be freed from your sin. He left the tomb so that you could one day leave this earth. His body was glorified so that you too can have a glorified body in heaven. He lives so that you can live in him and he in you. It's an amazing reflection that we have on the empty tomb this morning as we move now to our third heading, the comprehension based on scripture and experience. Comprehension based on scripture and experience. Look at verse eight, your next blank says, you must see and believe. You must see and believe the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. Now that Peter had totally immersed himself in the tomb, he might have got there second, but he goes into the tomb first. And now that Peter's in there kind of experiencing and checking everything out, John now steps in. And sometimes it takes more than a stoop and a look. Sometimes it takes entering in yourself And notice it was when John entered the tomb, not when he was outside the tomb, but when he entered into the tomb is when the text says that he saw and he believed. In fact, when Jesus, or John rather, wrote this account, he used three different Greek words for seeing. Look up at verse five. 
It's the first time we see him use the word seeing. In verse 5, it says, when he saw the linen and the cloths lying there. Now, that word in verse 5 for seeing, when he saw the cloths lying there, that verb simply means to glance in or to casually look in. And then in verse 6, when Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, so that word in verse 6, he saw the linen cloths lying there, that word means to look carefully or to observe. The word saw here in verse 8 means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Do you see the progression here? Just even how John's stringing together these three words for to see. First, John reached the tomb and he saw that it was an empty tomb and that Jesus' grave clothes were there, but this was just a glance. This was just a cursory look. Had he not fully uh, pressed in, he might have just stopped there, just shy of really believing. But then when Peter came, he entered into the tomb and more carefully observed the cloth lying there with the face cloth folded and put in a place by itself. And he's starting to put it together with a more careful observation. And then here in verse 8, this word saw means to, it means to, to, to have comprehension, to perceive with intelligent comprehension. And so it began to dawn on John that this was real that Jesus had really been raised from the dead, that Jesus was alive, that the resurrection has now changed everything. And the point, uh, the point that he's making here is that at this point, John believes. Now, I think that John was likely already converted, but this occurrence of the resurrection, this actual experience of being in the empty tomb, this moment would be what would solidify in his heart the truth of the resurrection for the rest of his life. This would, would drive his belief even deeper, and this would make his faith even stronger. And if John ever doubted, he could look back to this moment, and if John ever wavered, he could remember this rock-solid truth. And if John ever faced hardship, he could know that the resurrection is real and that Jesus lives and that I can, with his help, get through this. In fact, this is what John writes about in John chapter 20, verse 31, same chapter into the, into the chapter, verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so while you may not have been there in the tomb, I mentioned Friday night, some of us have been able to go to Israel, maybe you've been there, to where the, the crucifixion took place, either at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher or at the Garden Tomb, and at the Garden Tomb, you're actually able to, uh, to go in. And it's a tomb that was from the first century. It's just like the tomb that Jesus would have been in. No one can say for sure that it is the tomb. In fact, there's reasons to believe that it's not the tomb, but it was like the tomb. And when you go down into the tomb, you have this whole passage just kind of coming at you. And, 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 and while you may not have been able to be there, you don't have to go to Israel to be a believer in Jesus. Praise God, right? It's just a privilege for those who have been able to go. But, but can you imagine, even though you haven't been there, that on this day you can be seeing with your spiritual eyes. You don't have to physically be there, but I do believe there ought to be a moment in your life where you have had a similar experience where you saw God for who he was and you saw the risen Christ through the scripture and you believed. There's got to be a point where you progress in your own cursory look at faith, deeper observance of faith, 
to now intelligent comprehension of faith, Jesus died for me, that he has now been raised from the dead, and that you could have that deep in your heart where the Bible talks about how the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, and there needs to be some type of moment of belief. This is what we're getting at with this passage that, verse 9, that you need the Holy Spirit to enable you to understand. You need the Holy Spirit to enable you to understand. It says again, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So we understand in this moment again, there's, there's some understanding. Again, we could debate when exactly they got saved, but we do know that before this point, they didn't fully understand that, that Jesus would actually be physically resurrected even though Jesus had told them many times. In John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In Luke 9, 22, Jesus said, the son of man will be killed, and on the third day he will be raised. In Mark chapter eight, we read about how Jesus taught this to his disciples, that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he had said this plainly. And Peter, in Mark 8, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. It's almost as if every time Jesus said, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised in three days, that they didn't hear the second part of that. He just said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed by the chief priest. And immediately they're like, no, 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 Jesus, you're not going to die. And they never actually heard him say, and I will be raised on the third day. I will be resurrected. And it takes the Holy Spirit to enlighten your heart so that you can have true understanding. I I know the Holy Spirit's not mentioned in the text. I know the Holy Spirit essentially comes on the day of Pentecost, but I'm saying to you, it does require for us today to truly be made alive, that quickening of our spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses his scripture as a tool. It's the word of God that is living and active, and the Holy Spirit regenerates you. It's the Holy Spirit that opens your mind, and he opens your heart, and he gives you the ability to understand the revelation of God. And that's what happens to you when you get saved. And that's what happens throughout your life. As you study the word of God, you have a deeper understanding. We know the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and the Holy Spirit will guard you and guide you to be a strong believer in the truth. And his anointing teaches you about all things. And so on this day in the tomb, finally it became crystal clear that Jesus was resurrected. And if they didn't fully comprehend it before, they do now. They saw, they believed, they understood. And I'm saying to you this morning, the same can happen to you. You may be here today and you're, you're a cursory Christian, meaning you're a casual Christian, giving a cursory look to the things of God and the things of Scripture. And you've been outside the tomb, even taking that first glance in And this morning, we're just inviting you to come all the way into the empty tomb, that not only would you see, but that you would experience new life. And when I I say that the comprehension here is based on scripture and experience, what I mean is that you must experience the conversion of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying to you this morning, his wind must blow across your heart. His fire must be breathed into your soul. And you can only experience that kind of truth by 
the spirit of truth, bringing the word of truth into your life. And when the Holy Spirit opens up God's word so that you're not just seeing it from a human standpoint, but he grants repentance and converts you through belief and faith, then you will be empowered to walk in obedience. It's the word of God, just to be clear. It's the word of God, not personal experience, which is the basis of your faith. But once you have been born again, that is an experience which no one can deny. And the scriptures are our authority, but a personal experience is also necessary for you to truly be born again. I'm saying it's not about head knowledge, it's about heart. It's about God changing your heart. And then when that happens, we see the last blank, you should share what you have learned with others. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. It's a little bit anticlimactic, I think. You know, <laughs> this happens and it's like, oh, then they went back home. But I think there's a lot more in that then we give it credit for, no doubt, when they return home, they shared what they had learned with others. And we are to be a witness to the truth. And when the soldiers told the chief priest what happened, the Jewish leaders gave them a sufficient sum of money and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole away his body while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, some people lie about what happened, and some people tell the truth. The Romans, the Pharisees, the Jews who chose not to believe, they lied about it. The believers, the disciples, those whom God had opened their hearts, they began to testify that Christ is risen. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 12 and following, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the argument is made again, if resurrection isn't true, we're all doomed. And then that text ends by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so I'm here to tell you this morning, Christ has been raised from the dead. Your life is futile without knowing the power of the resurrection. And it's not just something that you give mental assent to, it's something that you've been transformed by. And so my message to you this morning is to come, come to Christ, come into the empty tomb, see where his body lay, he is not here, he is risen. And before you leave today, after we sing our last song, we'll have a few people standing right over here. We would love to talk with you about how you could come into the tomb, how you could see the fact that Christ is not here, he's risen, he reigns in heaven and in the hearts of his people. And if you're a believer this morning, don't you see how the resurrection changes everything? And I would want you to think about some of these take-home 
applications today. How does learning about Mary Magdalene at the beginning of our service, just thinking about her coming to the tomb, how does it make you want to love Christ more? I hope that you'll think about to him who has been forgiven much, he'll love much. What a beautiful lesson we can learn from that truth. Or, or number two, why do so many people want to explain away the resurrection? What is your best explanation of the resurrection? Number three, what's the difference between seeing or believing on a cursory level, casual level, or on a life-transforming level? If you believe, if you've seen, if you've experienced, it ought to radically transform you. So I pray that God would help us learn all the lessons that he wants us to learn this morning from our study of the empty tomb. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together, to see a familiar passage of scripture, to make maybe some new observations or just new insight. We pray your spirit would speak through your word into our hearts from the text today in ways that would encourage us in ways that would challenge us, in ways that would help us experience a deeper love for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not be outdone in the sense of we would recognize the depth of our sin and our depravity. And as we see the beauty and the power of the resurrection, it would cause us to love you much. We have been forgiven much. We do want to love much. And I pray that you would do that work in our hearts by your spirit, through your word, in a way that we could talk about it, reflect on it, encourage one another with these words that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.